Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. Next week, September 12th to 16th, is Disability Voting Rights Week. In preparation for this, Judy sat down with Lillian Alori from AAPD's Rev Up campaign, Dessa Cosma from Detroit Disability Power, and YT Bell from the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. In this episode, you'll learn more about each of our guests and the work that they're doing to improve disabled people's access to voting. Please be sure to check out this episode's description, which has links to resources and more information on Disability Voting Rights Week. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. All right, everybody, welcome back to The Human Perspective. Uh, we have assembled a group of really uh, knowledgeable people today to discuss an issue that is of grave importance to not only everyone in the United States, but around the world, and that's the issue of voting. So we will be discussing Disability Voting Rights Week and learning more about it, and then learning about work that three people in different organizations are doing to advance the rights of people in voting, including disabled individuals. So my parents are immigrants from Germany, and voting was something that was always very important to us. And any actions which are suppressing people's rights to vote are something that I've always been very concerned about. And like many of you, those concerns have been growing over the last many number of years with failure to, in fact, institute laws that protect the rights of people, including disabled people, as well as the regressive legislation that has been passed in many states that is making it more difficult for people to vote. So today we're going to be um, discussing some of the efforts that are going on, learning about what some of those barriers are and work that people are doing. And I would like to please introduce our three speakers, Lillian O'Lori, who's with the American Association of People with Disabilities. Lillian. Hi, thanks so much. I am really excited to be here. I run the Rev Up voting campaign at AAPD, the American Association of People with Disabilities. I've been here for a little over two years. I started in 2020, which was a really hectic uh, voting year, and 2022 is bringing its own challenges. And so I'm excited to talk more with you all today. Thank you so much, Dessa Cosma. Yeah. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. My name is Dessa. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the founding director of Detroit Disability Power. And YT Bell. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Judy, for having me on your podcast. Um, and I have the honor and pleasure of serving as a senior advisor of voting um, for the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, which is the largest civil and human rights coalition in the country, representing over 230 organizations that protect and fight for our civil and human rights each and every day. Thank you for having me, Judy. Thank you so much for being on. And just a little bit of history. Uh, one of the reasons I'm so excited to learn that the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights is really much more embracing the inclusion of disability rights organizations. It's a change that has gone on since 1980 when LCCHR began to get involved with work that was going on with the Americans with Disabilities Act. 
as it was evolving. And I think LCCHR is really a great example of the changes organizations can be undergoing to really put what I call a disability lens on their work. And obviously, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, because of what YT has said, is such a major organization that is not just composed of organizations that are only based nationally, but that also have affiliates across the country. So the ability for LCCHR to really uh, take on the issue of voting rights in collaboration and cooperation with other organizations can have a very meaningful impact over the long run. So thank you very much. Lillian, could you please discuss what Voting Rights Week is? And also at that time, give us a little bit more information about when RevUp was started and why. I am excited to tell y'all a little bit about Disability Voting Rights Week, which is an initiative of the RevUp Voting Campaign. Both the RevUp Voting Campaign and Disability Voting Rights Week started in 2016. Back then, it was called the National Disability Voter Registration Week. Um, and what continued to be called that up until this year, actually. Um, and so RevUp started out as a coalition, a grassroots coalition of disabled organizers in Texas. In 2016, AAPD saw that model of building a coalition focused specifically on building the power of the disability vote and then took that national. Um, so now we have coalitions in many different states. We have partner organizations as well at the national, local, and state level. And so Disability Voting Rights Week is one of the big touch points of the year for the RevUp voting campaign, where we invite all of our partners and even folks that are new to RevUp to join in this week that's focused on building the power of the disability vote in many different ways. During this week, even when it was called National Disability Voter Registration Week, we had lots of different activities going on, including voter registration, voter education, doing accessible voting machine demonstrations, engaging candidates through candidate forums, focus on disability issues, um, and so we continue to have a broad range of activities going on during this week. It is September 12th to 16th of this year, and so you can learn a little bit more at aapd.com slash dvrw. And so this year, we are getting close to 200 organizational partners and individual partners as well for uh, Disability Voting Rights Week 2022. We will be engaging in some social media outreach, you know, really pushing out messages that kind of emphasize the importance of our vote as people with disabilities. And we will also be providing lots of resources to our, our grassroots partners who are really kind of leading the way in the local activity activities, doing the, the, the direct voter outreach um, and engagement. Thank you, Lillian. And one of the points that you raised, maybe you could spend a couple minutes talking about, and that is um, how organizations that are nonpartisan can be engaging with candidates to learn more about the work that they are doing or not in the area of disability. Absolutely. So engaging candidates is definitely one of those pieces of voter engagement and civic engagement that I know a lot of nonprofits may kind of feel nervous about because it seems to kind of be harder to do in a nonpartisan way. Um, but in fact, candidate engagement has been a part, it's, it's really been a part of the DNA of RevUp from the beginning. Building the power of the disability vote is not just getting our voters out to the polls, getting voters doing their, their vote by mail ballots, 
but it's also making sure that candidates know that every issue that they are campaigning on impacts people with disabilities and for them to be able to understand how that impacts us. Part of RevUp's beginning was recognizing how little candidates mention disability. You know, we already know that there is a huge gap in representation of disability among elected officials. But one of the other pieces of that is that among candidates in general, among elected officials in general, we often don't find disability being um, something discussed. And so one of the ways that we support uh, our partner organizations in doing this outreach in a nonpartisan way is in two, two main ways. So one, a lot of RevUp partners have done candidate forums over the years, and these are where they invite every candidate in, you know, maybe one or two or three races in their area, and then they will prepare questions, hopefully send those questions to the candidates ahead of time so they have some time to kind of prepare, and then they'll invite the public, they'll invite people with disabilities, they'll invite people in their community to have a chance to bring candidates and people with disabilities and voters together so that candidates can you know, have a chance to speak with disabled voters and voters can have a chance to know where the candidates stand on the issues that are impacting them. And so as long as you are inviting and, and giving genuine equal effort to invite all of the different candidates in a particular race, then that is a nonpartisan way to do outreach. And then the other way that we encourage folks to engage candidates is through candidate surveys. Um, so it's a slightly smaller lift than doing a big candidate form event, but through a candidate survey or questionnaire, you can prepare open-ended questions that ask about their positions on specific disability issues and how, you know, for example, how general issues like healthcare impact people with disabilities so closely. And so through a survey like this, you can send out that survey again to every candidate in a particular race to do it in a nonpartisan way. Um, and really push candidates to be thinking about these issues and to respond with their positions. It, it can be sort of an educational moment um, for candidates kind of um, have an opportunity to respond and connect with the disability community. Yeah, so there's certain things that you need to make sure you do, like having equal effort for candidates, not commenting or, you know, providing positive or negative responses to candidates' positions or candidates' responses to a survey. But yeah, you can definitely do it in a nonpartisan way. And you're also allowed to share that information publicly as long as you've done it in a nonpartisan way. And your organization can also have its own view on issues like healthcare. And you can be including that. Yeah. And one quick note is that there was a great webinar. I want to say it was by Nonprofit Vote recently. As long as you don't put your positions on issues together with candidate responses, it's totally fine to have both. And we have both. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Thank you so much, Lily. And Dessa, could you give us a little bit more information about your organization, what you're doing in the area of voting rights, as well as other areas that you're working on? Sure. So since the founding of Detroit Disability Power in 2018, voting rights and voting access has been a cornerstone of what we focus on. And that's because we understand that nothing else we care about can happen or move in a positive direction if our folks can't vote and make their priorities known through the democratic process. And so we do a lot of different work around voting rights. That includes polling location surveys, uh, both for primary and general elections, we get our members to fill out forms when they go to vote because there's so many precincts, we couldn't possibly hit them all ourselves. So we get our folks to do it, to submit the information, and then we compile it 
and make visual uh, maps of where there are voting problems and then use that to work with city county clerks and the secretary of state to show where there's persistent problems and make recommendations for how to ensure those polling locations are accessible. And this is an awesome way to actually just get a lot of people invested in the process of making polling locations more accessible. Uh, we also do pretty big get out the vote program every cycle. So we get a field team together. We design a campaign. We do doors and phones and texts and mail to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Detroit voters who are what's considered low propensity voters. So folks who actually really need a push to get out and vote on election day. And we make the connection for them when we're talking with them or sending them mail between the lived experience of disability and the impact of who's elected and what kind of policies they support. And since we're a nonpartisan organization, uh, like Lillian said, there are restrictions on how we do this, but we're really trying to increase people's critical thinking and political analysis around the impact of election on our daily lives. And to Lillian's point, how there is a disability perspective on every single issue that candidates are already running on. And the fact is, we want to, through building political power and showing up in greater numbers to vote, we want to pressure or encourage uh, elected officials and candidates to understand that our our community has priorities and that those priorities matter. And while every issue has a disability angle, there are particular things that our community really needs and wants. And as a constituency, we try to push for that. And that's a year round kind of thing, not just an election cycle vibe. The rest of the year, you know, we have our members in action teams, which organize around issues like healthcare, education, housing, and voting rights. And there's a lot to be said about what happens legislatively around voting rights year round. And so there's always plenty of work for us to do whether or not an election is coming. And so we engage our members that way throughout the year. And, you know, finally, part of our work, in addition to organizing disabled people and our allies on issues, is really helping to transform, pushing the social justice movements to be more inclusive of and prioritize disabled people and our, and our issues. Uh, so we work in coalition with many other social justice organizations in the voting rights space, but also in other spaces, other issue and community spaces to help you know, ensure that our message of access and inclusion is going farther than where we can take it alone, but really using other like-minded social justice organizations to take that forward everywhere that they go on our behalf as well. Thank you very much, Dessa. YT, could you explain the work that the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights is doing in the area of voting? Yes, great question. Thanks, Judy. Um, so the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, um, of course, has been this coalition, as I mentioned initially, where we focus on federal voting rights legislation. Well, we all know we don't have a piece of federal um, voting rights legislation that we're marching. However, uh, we're still in the fight on the federal side, trying to get voting rights provisions added to some previous um, legislation, um, but also monitoring pieces of legislation that kind of uh, align with Voting Rights Act and the things that we ask for as it relates to voting provisions. However, what we do know is is that while the fight is still being fought on the federal level, the fight currently is in states. And so the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights has pivoted uh, into 11 key states. And those key states were picked at from a matrix of demographic, uh, opportunity to win, margins um, to gain, as well as gaps to fill. 
Uh, some of these states have state coalitions. Some of them don't. Uh, some of them also have organization, grassroots, local organizations that have been doing this work for years. And so we help them, right, with strategy and capacity um, to move their programs, whether they're voter education programs, voter mobilization or election protection programs, and also connect them with coalition members. Um, because yes, we do have a lot of national coalition members, but we also have a lot of state affiliates as well as partners on the ground that are doing the work. And so by us providing micro grants, support, strategy sessions with them, we definitely help them um, meet the moment and also turn a lot of Black and Brown voters out around the states in the country. Thank you. I would appreciate knowing, Dessa and OIT, how you're involved with Disability Voting Rights Week. Dessa, you want to go first? Sure, yeah. Uh, we have an event coming up during Disability Voting Rights Week called Disabled Voters 6% Could Swing Elections. And this event is actually really exciting because our members are planning, hosting, and facilitating this event. And this uh, voting rights action team that I mentioned a minute ago has been spending the last couple of months putting this together. And you may recognize the 6% from the Rutgers study that came out last year showing that compared to our non-disabled peers, we vote 6% less. And um, when you start thinking about the small margins that most elections are won by, you can tell that if we showed up more, if we were organized and showed up more, that 1.75 million additional votes in the United States would actually potentially very likely change the outcome of some elections. And so we want to start educating people about how important it is for our community to show up to vote and to do it loudly and proudly and as disabled people again, making the connection between elections and the daily lived experience of us in our community as disabled people. Uh, and we also want to start promoting that as a way to remind people running that we are a constituency that deserves the attention of any other constituency. And uh, I would say we actually deserve more attention than other constituencies because we've been ignored for so long. And so uh, the focus of that event is really telling some stories around our own voting experiences, lifting up the importance of turning out the disability vote as a constituency of voters here in Detroit, here in Michigan and across the country. And then also, you know, bringing people into our year-round organizing as it relates to voting rights and other things. NYT. So what we do know, and I'll just give some context before I dive a little bit deeper, Judith, if that's okay. Uh, we do know that every individual uh, and every organization that is a part of our coalition and our expanded allies know someone that has a disability or whether you can see it or you can't see it, right? And so there is a way to kind of um, be the trusted messenger and utilize the relationships that we have and do some relational organizing to turn more people out. Because maybe as organizations and like leaders of these organizations, we're not the best messengers, but your friends, your family members who are closest to you know of the issues that you're facing and actually can probably more than likely, um, based off data, turn you out. And so we also know that last year and last cycle alone, there were over 400 pieces of legislation um, that had restrictive voting right provisions in them throughout the country in 49 states, which is a lot, right? And in those pieces of legislation, those bills that were introduced, there were tons of restrictions, especially for individuals with disabilities. Um, but we know that when we did it right, right, during the pandemic, everybody in both sides realized that we need to ensure voting is accessible. And so we need to make it easier. And when we did make it easier, we know that millions of disability voters turned out, which definitely helped us secure the win on um, the wins that we had throughout the country uh, in 2020. 
And I say this to say that during Disability Voting Rights Week, which is why it's so important for the leadership conference, is because we know that people are not single issue people, but we also know that the disability community makes up a significant block of our electorate. And so we need to prioritize them, uh, as Dessa just mentioned, as well as Lillian. Uh, and so while we're doing it, what we're doing this year is we're partnering with AAPD, Lillian, and we're having a briefing on uh, what does it mean to be a disability voter and like how do we engage with them on an ongoing basis, not just during election time, but year round to understand their issues, to have more candidate conversations with them, and also to work in our legislative work to ensure that there are no provisions on pieces of legislation and bills that, you know, inhibit their ability to access the ballot. Um, but we know in the 400 plus the piece of legislation and bills that we saw, there were tons of restrictions. And so I think it's important now to bring that to the coalition so they can expand their perspective on the disability community, as well as really find out from experts in the community on how to prioritize them ongoing and ensure that they have access to the ballot as we think about civil and human rights. Thank you very much. Lillian, would you like to add anything more to the Disability Voting Rights Week information? Yeah, this is not exactly adding to the content for Disability Voting Rights Week, but I was thinking while Dessa and YT were talking and, and kind of drawing the connections between this big disability gap and who turns out to vote and then these you know 400 plus bills that YT was talking about, that there are so many reasons why people do and don't vote. And when it comes to the disability community, one of the pieces that that we've been paying particular attention to, and, and you know, Dessa was talking about it, YT was talking about it, is this issue in accessing the ballot. There's the whole piece about not being represented in elected positions and overall feeling disconnected from the democratic process. There was a survey recently by the Century Foundation that found that less than three in 10 disabled voters believed that their leaders in Congress cared about people with disabilities. And that, that says a lot right there about how people feel about politics and about the people that are kind of leading the big policy decisions in our country. So, so there, there's definitely that piece of it. And there's also this really, really significant piece of the access barriers that people with all different disabilities face throughout the voting process. So it's not just about looking at, at you know, the actual act of voting, whether you're voting in person or remotely. It starts with how you learn about what's on the ballot, when you have to vote, when are your upcoming elections. So I would say like information access is definitely a piece that AAPD has been focusing on a lot in the last couple of years. And I think it will continue to be really important this election with all of the different changes coming from this wave of voting restrictions. You know, some states have done great work to put into law the positive changes they made in voting to make it more accessible, but many other states have really worked hard to make it more difficult and less accessible to vote. And so making sure that voters know what the current laws are in their state, that they know how, when, where to vote is, it continues to be a really important part of ensuring that the disability vote turns out in elections. Thank you very much. And I think this is a great link to the next area that I would like to talk about. You were talking about there have been 400 bills that have been introduced. What I'd like to know more specifically, what are some specific examples in voting rights laws that have been passed that are making it more difficult for people with various disabilities to vote? Lillian, you want to go first on that? Sure, sure. Um, and I'm definitely, I'll pass it over to YT for more information. 
So there have been a couple of trends that we've noticed in these bills and how they're impacting people with disabilities. So probably the biggest overall category that comes to mind is moves to limit voting by mail and voting remotely. That was one of the biggest changes, I think, just culturally around voting that we saw when it became a choice between your health and even your life um, and participating in democracy for so many people um, who are immunocompromised, had disabilities, other things that put them at a much, much higher risk um, to COVID-19 in 2020. It's very disappointing to see that that kind of reversal for so many states. We saw how beneficial being able to vote remotely safely from where you live um, had in 2020 and in turnout. And so that's one big area that, you know, while voting by mail with a paper ballot, the different methods that are available aren't always accessible to all voters. And so we still have a lot of work to do to make sure that both in-person and remote voting is accessible to all voters with disabilities, but it certainly made a big difference and increased access to many voters, including voters with disabilities. And so that's one big trend. There have been attempts to, and, and, and actual moves to restrict giving water and food to people in line, which again, for many people with disabilities, waiting in a line for hours is just not possible. And so the, the just the ways to undermine and just make voting harder when it doesn't need to be, it just, it boggles my mind. But yeah, so those are some, some really quick examples. YT. Yes, I'll jump in here real quickly um, to not belabor the conversation. However, voter ID, if we're, we're going to start there, right? That has been a measure and a trend that we've seen throughout the country in several pieces of legislation. We know that it inhibits, um, quite frankly, it makes it harder for individuals to vote because, quite frankly, in some states, a lot of people don't even have a driver's license because they do not drive, and especially individuals um, that have a disability, right? And so you're saying that in order for them to cast a ballot, that is the only ballot form, which definitely disenfranchises on this community. In addition to that, specifically, um, this happened in Texas. Y'all remember when uh, they were throwing out mail-in ballots because they said that the names didn't match up. Um, they also indicated that individuals to vote needed to show an ID uh, or have some other verifying uh, documentation, but it didn't include a social security card. Um, but also Wisconsin, I think, was one of the ones that people didn't realize the impact of it, right? In Wisconsin, um, there was a circuit court ruling that mandated that only a voter um, not a designee, not a caregiver could turn in their absentee ballot. And for a lot of individuals in that community, they rely on those caregivers to turn in the absentee ballot, right? And that wasn't the case no more. Uh, and we saw it happen, right? In the April 5th primary in Wisconsin, overwhelmingly, right? There were a ton of voter hotline calls being made, questioning whether their ballot would be counted or they didn't vote at all just because of this limitation. So I think those are some of the biggest trends. I mean, I will say, as we all know, know the big lie is still rampant people still believe it and quite frankly it's a fear-mongering tactic which causes people not to want to go vote in Pennsylvania uh, specifically Nazi there was tons of uh, online social media around like hey this process is not fair it's not comprehensive why should you go vote it may not count right and so that in itself caused people to stay at home but I will also say this while that is a negative of those pieces of legislation you know, having the January 6th hearings and for people to realize what exactly happened has also kind of turned the tables and increased the turnout uh, of all voters, whether you have a disability uh, or not. 
um, trying to figure out how to vote early and kind of navigate um, these new confines due to these uh, legislations that hinder access to the ballot. Thank you. Odessa, let me just give a little twist on this question for you. So Michigan has been one of the states where there have been various attempts at changes to law. Are there specific pieces of the voting legislation that have been changed? That's number one. But the other issue I'm wondering is, are you at the local level uh, working with people to help them be able to get their ballots to a mailbox or wherever it needs to go? So they are the ones that are actually uh, delivering or dropping in the appropriate places their ballots. And what are you doing to help people understand the importance of voting? Great. So fortunately for us in Michigan, in 2018, we passed a ballot initiative after a lot of very hard organizing um, across the state. Voters supported a ballot initiative that really expanded voting rights in our state. And so the combination of those legal changes and uh, what Lillian brought up about the precautions taken during COVID in 2020's election meant that we really did have a high turnout and a lot of people were able to engage in the democratic process in a way that actually made sense for them and that wasn't totally challenging to navigate. And we saw the continued impact of that in a very high turnout earlier this month in our primary. And so there was a lot of good trends happening. And uh, as we're discussing, there have been dozens of bills introduced here in Michigan that in the wake of the 2020 election and all the lies that have come out, uh, trying to limit those expansions and trying to make it much harder for people to vote. We know that in general, more options are better for disabled people. In fact, more options are better for all people. And yet these bills that have been introduced by our legislature really are about taking away options, limiting drop boxes, tying the hands of local clerks, injecting a more partisan process into what should be a nonpartisan process. And so thankfully, we have a governor who has vetoed all of these bills that have passed. Uh, we have a very committed attorney general and secretary of state who are really on it when it comes to protecting our voting rights. And so for the time being, we've been able to push back. And excitingly, we have a ballot initiative that recently turned in far more signatures than are required that would actually fundamentally ensure the right to vote in our state and would also kind of preemptively push back on some of these negative voter restrictions that continue to be introduced. And so hopefully that will be on the ballot and we will win in November to put this stuff in the constitution and make it permanent. So that's the like political landscape. Uh, here in Michigan, if you can't turn in your own ballot, you need someone that either lives in your house or is an immediate family member to turn it in for you. An immediate family member can mean in-law, grandchild, grandparent, but it can't just be anybody. And so there is there is a limit, you know, like I can't go to my neighbor's house and be like, let me take your ballot for you. That would technically not be allowed. And this, you know, this impacts people to an earlier point that live in congregate settings or who live, you know, in senior housing that somebody could come and get all of them and make sure they got delivered, but that's not possible in Michigan. So there are uh, organizations that help get people to the polls or to the drop box to deliver their ballot or to vote. And that's, that's really important. Thank you. I'm wondering how are accommodations actually being handled? Uh, Lillian, do you see like when you look across the country, are there certain areas where accommodations are being provided in a positive way, in a negative way? And is there a national approach that's being taken 
as well as working with the states and how to address the issue of accommodations in voting? That is a good question. I would say to answer the first part of that question, because really accessibility, whether or not a, a polling location or a process is accessible, can really come down to the individual county and the election officials carrying things out for that county. So it is kind of tough to paint a picture like nationally for how, how it's happening, you know, despite whatever laws, whatever guidance there is, what is actually happening on the ground as far as how it varies geographically. We still know that the accessibility rate of polling locations continues to be abysmal. As recently as 2017, there was a GAO review of polling places that if you included barriers outside of a polling place, it was like 17% of polling locations that didn't have a barrier either inside or outside of a polling location. So that kind of continues to be a widespread issue. As far as what we can do nationally about it, RevUp and other organizations have been working to push for more disability awareness and education when it comes to training poll workers who have a lot of ability to make an experience accessible for people with disabilities. I think there's kind of two pieces, one which is educating lawmakers and election officials about what makes an, elect an accessible election, and then also the piece of empowering poll workers to understand how to facilitate an accessible and respectful and dignifying process that any voter would want when they go into a polling location. And so developing poll worker trainings is something that I'm really interested in. I know a lot of folks have begun to do already um, at the more local level. Level. And then we also have an election accessibility toolkit that we'll hopefully be um, working on and updating um, in the coming year that attempts to describe an accessible election in an educational way, um, kind of throughout the process of an election. Yeah, so I think that really the education piece is a big part of um, making sure that practically the laws that we have and the rights that we have are being implemented. And unfortunately, sort of in lieu of that happening, the option for a lot of voters when things don't go well is to contact their protection and advocacy agency or to call the election protection hotline. Line. Thank you. That's I'm wondering because you're focusing in one state in a particular area, but I know you also work more broadly. How are you working after previous elections to help ensure that polling places that are selected are accessible? Are you at all involved with that? Yes, we are involved in that, although it has shifted a little bit since the pandemic began. We used to meet monthly with the Detroit clerk and her team to talk about how to make Detroit's elections more accessible. And, you know, here in a city like Detroit that has had generations of disinvestment, uh, it's an older city. A lot of our infrastructure is very old and inaccessible. And we're also losing public spaces as things are becoming privatized and gentrified. So there's a class component. The historic disinvestment in Detroit is about racism. So all these things come together, meaning that there's a lot of inaccessibility in our infrastructure and where people can actually even have a polling location. So we worked with the Detroit clerk for about a year and a half before the pandemic 
And as a part of that, we designed, we helped with another organization called Warriors on Wheels. We helped design a set of trainings for poll workers, specifically about accessibility, specifically about how to respectfully engage disabled voters, how to help folks use the accessible voting machines, which, you know, we'd like to see a lot more people using because that will a, speed up lines, and B, will ensure that more, more poll workers feel confident using the machines because they're using them all day instead of maybe like once. <laughs> and so we helped design that training. And again, we, we make these maps of any place that we find out is inaccessible in some way. And we use those maps to continue teaching and also holding accountable the people whose job it is to make sure that we can actually exercise our right to vote. So that's all still happening. Uh, we also work with the Secretary of State and the Bureau of Elections. The way that our state is, it's a very decentralized election system, but the Secretary and the Bureau can make recommendations to clerks. They can provide materials, educational stuff, guidance. And so one of the things we also have done is create some documents that kind of get at how to set up a polling location so that it is accessible. To, to Lillian's point, election day staff they have so much potential to make a, um, a voting experience positive, but they have to have enough information about disability and accessibility to do that. And so, you know, the way a, a polling site is set up can either make or break someone's ability to engage in the process. And so even just providing a diagram or a set of guidance to say, like, here's some things to consider that some of them are legally required, and we make that very clear, but some of them are just about thinking and acting on the desire to make it easier. And so we try to provide that information through every channel we possibly can. Thank you. YT, do you believe that people are becoming more knowledgeable and actively involved in participating in voting overall? I think so, um, Judy, only because of the, the impact I think people realize on their lives. I think at one point it was just, hey, you go out and turn out a vote. No, these are the things that impact my everyday life. Whether it's the water that I drink, the roads that I drive on, you know, the actual, how can I turn in my ballot, whether it's accessible or not. I think that that is why, but I also think that we've kind of shifted on how we talked about voting, right? We don't talk about it as, hey, you need to turn out and vote. We talk about it from an issue frame, whether that issue is priority to folks. And then that can turn people wild and not necessarily a process because if I'm being completely honest and transparent, people have felt like they turned out and they've not received all the things that they were promised or they thought they were going to get. And so in fact, that can reduce trust. And so um, we're changing the lens, we're getting on the ground, we're talking to people, meeting them where they are in their communities at the stop sign, right? We know that during COVID, we had tons of food distribution drives. Like, yes, we're giving you this food, we're going to give you more food. Then that will also require us to ensure that you turn out the vote and that you're voting for people that also represent your everyday needs. And I think um, that in itself, Judith, has caused to increase that enthusiasm and that desire and the importance of voting. Thank you very much. And I completely agree with you, IT. I also feel that it's really important that people understand the voting process beyond what we're discussing now. Um, it does matter who is representing. And I think you've all been discussing this. So group A may be giving you what you want, but they may not be in the majority. And therefore, group B is going to be able to help ensure that nothing happens or that less happens than we want. So not only engaging people in why it's important to vote, but actually working with people, as I know you all are doing, to help them understand the issues. They make their own decisions in a nonpartisan way, but they need to be able to get the information. Lillian, I'm going to give you the last word before I give the last word. 
And that is, is there anything that you would like to say to our audience about RevUp? One thing I've been thinking about recently, and I'm sure this has been on the mind of, of everyone in this virtual room, is that there's this idea that voting should be hard and that only certain people deserve to vote. And I feel like that is at the crux of all of these attempts to make sure that Black and brown voters and disabled voters face so many barriers that they can't get to the ballot. And so I just, I've been thinking about the thinking behind the folks that are in, and, and the institutions that are wanting a world where it's hard to vote and wanting a world where only certain people vote. And it can be, I think, very disheartening to think about the fact that there is this whole kind of part of the country, not geographically, but ideologically, that doesn't want everyone to vote and doesn't think that certain people deserve to vote. And so I think as we talk about disabled voters and especially disabled voters at the margin, uh, at, at the margins, people who are disabled and black or brown um, are LGBTQ plus are facing these like multiple barriers to voting. It's so important that in our messaging, we are just over and over and over affirming that we are all a part of this country. We all have the right to vote. And so when it comes to all of the things that we do, all of the advocacy that we do, it's all about ensuring that we are all able to be a part of this democracy because we know who is voting, who's kind of favored in our laws and in our access to democracy that's who the country is going to work for. And so, you know, we know that our country is not working for many of us um, and the laws that we have and and the the systems that we have aren't working for many of us. Liz Weintraub, who works at the Association of University Centers on Disabilities, um, always says that all means all. And And I always think about how she says that and how that really should be our kind of mantra when it comes to voting. Well, I want to thank all of you, and I'd like to thank our audience for listening today, and that we end where we started. Uh, The right to vote is inherently important for us to live in a democracy, and we must be concerned about anyone who is being denied the right to vote for reasons that are, as Lillian was saying, are intentional on excluding people whose views may be different than others. Democracy is all about sharing our views, exercising our right to vote, feeling trusting of our system. And I guess one of my deep concerns also about what's been going on in the last number of years is how there are people who are trying to undermine our trust in government and undermine our trust in elections. And we have to prove them wrong. So we will be giving you information about uh, the Voting Rights Week so that people can learn more about it and participate as appropriate. And we'll be giving you other information about things that you can read. So thank you all very much for your time. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. That history won't forget us or Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. 
The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.